0: I'm Catherine Lambrecht, Chicago Foodways Roundtable, which is part of Culinary Historians. And the reason you get to pay is because this is the other meeting which you would be mad if we doubled the dues. So you just pay as you go. If you don't come, you're not unhappy, right? So we now want to introduce Mr. Dirks. Oh, I'm sorry. Dr. Dirks. I know. I, I have to remember what people's formality things are. So, um... You've been here now for what, a number of years? Seven. Seven. And we came and followed you. We did a, a at least one excursion down to um, Bloomington to see his exhibit when he did Come and Get It. Um, I think nobody knew how many people would show up, but about 30 people showed up from mostly the Chicago area to do Come and Get It, which was very pleasing. Um, and we saw his exhibit, which was really finely detailed. In fact, so much so that I drove back another time and sat with a chair and read each detail. Spent two hours there reading it. Somebody has to read those labels. I have an appreciation for that stuff. Um, here, Professor Emeritus from, was Illinois State Illinois University? Because all those Illinois universities confuse me. Sorry, but it's me, but Illinois State University. Um, it's a real privilege that we have a real anthropologist in the room.
1: <laughs> two
0: of them. Oh, two of them? Who's the other? Oh, oh now we're up to three. Oh, this is great. Excellent. <laughs> a lot of them. There are. Dr. Dirks.
1: Right.
2: Well, thank Well, thank you, Kathy. Um, I'm going to uh, talk about the, uh, the research uh, uh, behind this book, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, Food in the Gilded Age, What Ordinary Americans Ate. And uh, uh, there's a lot to talk about. I'm going to just uh, pick out some, some uh, highlighted takeaways and uh, uh, see, what you, see what you have in way of questions uh, uh, at the end. Uh, this this book uh, has a, a somewhat controversial cover. We didn't know whether people would pick this up or not if they uh, walked by it in, at their Barnes and Noble. Uh, who are the creatures uh, hanging out in front of this butcher shop? Sheep. No? no? Anyone know? These, these are possums and uh, You might think this is somewhere in the south. (laughs) Nope, New York City, Uh, 1892 or so. Uh, These butchers are are offering uh, uh, food today which uh, isn't terribly popular. Well, was it popular then? Did anybody uh, eat it? Uh, Here is a a possum dinner uh, for uh, President-elect Taft in uh, 1909. Um, So it was, uh, I wouldn't call it a popular dinner, but uh, very acceptable and good enough to uh, uh, serve a president, a president-elect. The reason I start with this is that this book is history. It uh, deals with an America of over 100 years ago. But uh, it's also a trip to a strange culture. Um, This is not... uh, uh, American uh, food think or food practices uh, uh, like we have today—it's uh, a trip back in time, but also a trip to a, a whole nother mindset and a whole other set of aesthetics and sensibilities and tastes, uh, in, including uh, including the possum. So, uh, both both uh, time and uh, and space. Uh, food in the Golden Age is about uh, America. Uh, roughly 1870 through uh, uh, 1910. Uh, Actually, technically, the Gilded Age is, most historians uh, think of it as ending at uh, the turn of the century, 1900. Um, The sources spill over a little bit uh, onto the other side of it. And much research that uh, was conducted in the 1890s didn't get published until after 1900. So we we slip over the line a little bit um, the book is about typical diets uh, in various regions of the country, including the, uh, the northeast and the southeast, mid-Atlantic states, you see the list of them there. Uh, the black belt of uh, Alabama and Mississippi, that, that refers to the soil, by the way. It's all, it might uh, also be looked upon as uh, uh, the uh, cotton belt, uh, the biggest uh, crops of cotton from that, that particular area. Uh, and it deals with the eating habits of different segments of society at this time. Uh, what ordinary Americans ate. Like. so we deal with the working class, uh, impoverished uh, peoples, uh, African Americans, and a whole variety of, uh, of immigrants, including uh, many here in Chicago, many uh, communities in Chicago. So why these particular regions? And uh, segments of society, and why the gilded age of all the time periods? Uh, it's an opportunistic piece of research. Uh, the data was there. It's been moldering away in uh, the archives of uh, um, the Library of Congress and the Department of Agriculture for uh, well over a hundred years. It's a uh, 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 The first opportunity anyone has who's interested in history to look at real scientific, quantitative data about what Americans ate, everything before then is from literary sources of one sort or another, and I'm including diaries and uh, novels and and, uh, uh, travelogue and so forth. The Gilded Age is uh, significant, and I couldn't resist looking at it, because it's the time when uh, nutrients were, what well, came to the attention of chemists. There were no nutritionists, no nutritionists at the time. The, uh, the, the, the founders of nutrition came out of chemistry. Uh, they became interested and discovered uh, that uh, foods have uh, uh, compounds in them called carbohydrates. They named them proteins and fats. And uh, they became very interested in how these, uh, not only the contents of the food, but how they functioned uh, in the human body. A burning question at the time was do people from all walks of life uh, and all races and corners of the globe, do they require the same nutrients in the same amounts? And there was also a desire to know how, how these nutritional Um, components related to economy and and occupations. So opportunistic research, uh, a fine opportunity to catch a glimpse of um, what people ate through the eyes of scientists working in a very, very systematic fashion. Uh, Here's the the man who uh, led the charge in the United States. Uh, W.O. Atwater, Wilbur Owen, Olin Atwater. uh, He was director of the Office of Experiment Stations for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He was previously a professor at Wesleyan University. Uh, He got wind of some very exciting stuff happening in Germany uh, where uh, uh, chemists were, were looking at these components of food He went over, he spent some time there, came back, wrote a few articles uh, in popular magazines and uh, promptly got himself appointed to uh, uh, the Office of Experiment Stations and began a research program, very much like uh, the one going on in Germany. Uh, He surrounded himself with uh, uh, other chemists who became uh, interested in the, uh, uh, the same topic Uh, The man on on the left there is H.C. White of the University of Georgia uh, chemistry department. Uh, One of the first people to uh, undertake field research. He did he did so up in the northeast mountainous corner uh, of Georgia uh, near Tallulah Falls if you if you know where that is. Uh, The lady in the center there is the first uh, professor of chemistry of the female uh, persuasion, MIT professor Ellen Richards, uh, often uh, cited as the founder of home economics, um, and on the right, uh, one of her students, uh, Isabel Bevier, who uh, uh, worked uh, on uh, Atwater projects and went on to found the home economics department at uh, University of Illinois where uh, those of you who are uh, graduates of there, you'll you'll recall Bevier Hall, one of the more interesting uh, buildings on campus, named after her. Um, There were um, non-chemists also involved in the the project, uh, economists and social scientists. The lady on the right is an anthropologist uh, from the uh, University of Chicago, I, maybe the first there, I'm not, not certain, uh, her name is Marion Talbot. Um, the uh, guy on the, uh, uh, on the left is Carol Wright, a statistician and economist, worked for a long time with the Labor Department in the state of Massachusetts and then the U.S. Census Bureau. Uh, they conducted food studies as well, not from a uh, uh, a, a nutritional point of view so much as from a family budget point of view. But their methods were much the same. And part of the method uh, doesn't exist much anymore in uh, nutrition, is a commitment to field work. Which is to say, they decided that if they're going to learn anything about human uh, food intake and uh, um, the uh, Uh, Typical diets, they're going to have to get out of their laboratories, get out of their offices, and get into the everyday situations, uh, households, schools, institutional kitchens, and so forth, and take very, very careful records. Um, The chemists amongst them uh, used uh, an interesting uh, approach. Uh, It's called the inventory approach now, the household inventory in which the uh, investigator goes one, two, perhaps three times a day uh, to a family kitchen like this, uh, this one in New York City, and uh, uh, sees what food has come into the kitchen since his or her last visit? Enumerate the foods, uh, weigh the foods to the nearest uh, uh, gram, and uh, and then uh, you subtract ref, uh, the uh, refuse, kitchen waste, uh, table waste, and leftovers. Uh, and uh, you had to have, of course, have your, your, um, uh, your, your subjects cooperate by saving their refuse and their, their, their table waste. And uh, then you get the quantity consumed uh, for the day and you divide it amongst the uh, a uh, number of people, proportional to their uh, gender and weight, and you, you've got uh, uh, you've got what was consumed per person per day. And uh, this was a day in which it was per man per day. I guess uh, women women were. Uh, uh, I I wouldn't say unimportant. Of course, their 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 uh, uh, their nutrition was charted, but it was calculated against a man's uh, needs at 80% mail, uh, mail requirement, so that'll come up. Just a quick chapter by chapter here. The book starts off in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, New Mexico Territory. Uh, I forget when New Mexico became a state, but I think it was 1910 or 1912, uh, not, too ter- not too terribly long ago. Uh, The book uh, then then moves to uh, southern Appalachia, uh, both the uh, hill country. uh, These are mountaineers on your left. A mountaineer family uh, celebrating a birthday party. And to uh, the mill towns, uh, like uh, Knoxville, uh, illustrated there on your right. That is a a Knoxville uh, cotton mill. Uh, Then to the to the African American communities, I mentioned the uh, picture on the left, uh, a uh, taken uh, back 1880 something in uh, uh, in Alabama. Uh, the uh, picture on the right from a uh, very different kind of African American uh, group, a different culture. Uh, this one in Hampton, Virginia, uh, people of very different sensibilities and and, and manners. Um, Upper and lower classes. That's Mrs. George Pullman on the, uh, on the left with one of her uh, tea's tea sets. And uh, here's an Irish family uh, in the streets of Chicago around uh, 1883 or four, something like that. I don't know if they're homeless or not, but uh, they don't seem un- too unhappy. <laughs> Eating Habits of Immigrants, the next chapter. Um, the, the data is richest and uh, most amenable to uh, interesting analyses for the Bohemians, that's from Chicago, uh, the uh, British, uh, including both uh, English and Scots, Chinese, that data coming from California, French Canadians, again from Chicago, uh, Germans from Chicago and New York, Irish from Chicago and New York and Philadelphia, Italians, including Chicago data, and Russian Jews, um, all from Chicago. So there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of Chicago uh, history in this book, and uh, I have to talk to the bookstore manager here on the way out. It should be, I think, <laughs> it should be in this, um, in this 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 bookstore. Uh, regional diets again opportunistic. The data exists for the Northeast, the Midwest, and the South. A little bit for the Southwest, a little bit for California, but the strength of the book is in in these areas. This is Indianapolis, uh, downtown Indianapolis farmers market uh, around uh, 1890, and that's uh, the Five Points area of New York, uh, there on the right. There's a, a, a quite a, a A hefty section of the book on uh, eating habits of men and women, uh, comparing and contrasting. Uh, And uh, uh, another, the closing section of the book, actually, on on how people um, in the Gilded Age uh, fueled or uh, took in enough calories for very, very strenuous activities, uh, including sports. Uh, These guys are are, uh, lumberjacks here. uh, on the left side, and on the right side, you have Chinese uh, farm laborers uh, from the uh, San Francisco area. Uh, After the talk, you'll be sampling lumberjack pies, both prune and raisin. Probably present on that table. Very popular today, by the way, in northern Wisconsin. All right, let me talk a little bit about, um, a little bit about the things that uh, uh, just, just some some interesting takeaways, I think. Um, you have to realize that the people during the Gilded Age gave very, very little thought to what, what they ate. In fact, before uh, nutritionists came along, um, nobody really thought about what they ate. You just ate what uh, was in your tradition or what was available in your community. Uh, it was not a really self-conscious uh, sort of thing, except for... Uh, insofar in as tradition might be called up to consciousness as in certain religions uh, at, at certain times of the year and uh, certain days of the week. Uh, early nutritionists sought to bring some scientific and economic thinking into play. Um, they were the uh, ones that eventually, after World War II, um, put Americans in the position of children so to speak they had to ask mom and dad what what are we what are we supposed to eat and uh, nutritionists uh, as parents uh, good parents tell us what what we should eat now uh, rather than thinking for ourselves but in, in any case uh, before they could tell anybody what what they were supposed to eat they had to discover minimum requirements and and, and do some background <coughs> work and and this att- directed their attention toward grocery lists and shopping carts and the contents of pantries. Uh, and, and I tell you this because uh, I'm not going to be talking about, and the book isn't doesn't focus on recipes or dishes. It's not truly a culinary history. Culinary history is all about the food that arrives at the table and the, the um, tastes that guide the preparation of that food and, uh, manners regarding its consumption. Uh, this is about diets, it is about the whole picture, it's about what comes into the kitchen, not what goes necessarily to the dining room table. It's all been processed and then is sent to the dining room table. So uh, uh, we're, we're, we're talking here about, uh, about grocery bags and uh, uh, garden baskets. Well, this brings us to two of the early pioneers in uh, in in the field. On the uh, uh, on the uh, left, uh, Colonel John Gregory Bork, uh, a boy from uh, Ireland who uh, escaped the famine, came to the U.S., uh, knocked around a bit, signed up, and found himself in the Civil War. So impressed his uh, Commanding officer, that he was sent to West Point thereafter, and Professor Arthur Gose, uh one uh, a chemist, who heard uh, of Atwater's program and uh, uh, said, "I can do that here uh, on my on my university campus." And his university campus was uh, uh, New Mexico. Uh, what do they call it? Agricultural and Mechanical, I think. Um, Colonel, uh, Colonel Bork, after he uh, uh, left West Point, was dispatched to the guerrilla warfare uh, currently going on in, uh, uh, in New Mexico against the Apache. Uh, that began in the 1860s. wasn't really over until 1926. It was a long, long, long uh, campaign. I think it, was, it officially came to the end Uh, sometime in the 1890s. Uh, In any case, uh, his commanding officer was this guy here, uh, General Crook. He's over here in Bork's uh, account of the Apache campaign. Uh, This is Bork himself sitting as the right-hand man of Crook. Indeed, he was the general's adjutant and he was assigned to intelligence. And he was uh, he spent a good deal of time doing ethnography uh, amongst the uh, uh, amongst the Apache. Um, he was a man of science. He was uh, a member of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, he served two terms as president of the American Folklore Society. And uh, so he uh, uh, he was, uh, a, a careful man and quite a luminary, uh, and very, very prolific uh, writer. He studied the diet, the indigenous diet uh, and food waste of this area, uh, in in blue here, which is the Greater Rio Grande Valley. He uh, uh, spent many years both during his military career and afterwards, traveling to the towns uh, and uh, uh, villages throughout and documenting uh, foodways. Uh, the, the product of this was a, a marvelous work, the very first work in English, in, in, uh, in North America, anyway, on Mexican-American food and it was published in the American Journal of Folklore uh, in, the, in the 1890s. So, he studied markets, uh, town life, country life, and he, uh, uh, before he was through, he documented 47 indigenous fruits and vegetables, um, unknown uh, uh, in, in the literature to that time but commonly available from street vendors and market stalls uh, and in homes uh, throughout the uh, throughout that particular area of the southwest he also um, uh, kind of uh, uh, created a typical uh, scene in a typical kitchen in a typical house somewhere in that valley uh, in which he he documents a, a, a diet or tells of a diet of uh, 15 different items over the course of several days so it, it, it's I think his point is to show that uh, that the Southwest is not a barren wasteland uh, but one of one of rich uh, rich nutritional possibilities here's a uh, Here's a, a, a marketplace. Um, the uh, showing some of the wealth of food available. Well, here is Las Cruces, New Mexico campus of uh, of uh, <laughs> New Mexico uh, State, Uni- State University's first building. Um, this was the only building when uh, the uh, good Professor Goss was there. Uh, he. Uh, he was a young guy in his 20s. He and his wife developed an intense interest in the Mexican-Americans uh, that were there before um, the Anglos showed up and the Indians. Um, this is his own photograph. He is also an amateur photographer. It's his own photograph of a, uh, uh, of a uh, rural, rural Mexican uh, house. Uh, this, uh, this picture up here. Uh, is, is not his own. I don't know if you can detect it. Uh, I, I believe this was taken by, yeah, um, I better not say. It, it was taken by some uh, 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 a Southwestern geographer, and uh, it's a photograph. The two older women are photographed, and then someone painted in the little girl. I think they wanted to show three generations of uh, corn culture there. But if you look very closely at the original, you can see that it's it, it, it's not uh, part of the photograph. <laughs> uh, Professor Goss studied a family in town, a Las Cruces Mexican-American family. Uh, this is what Las Cruces looked like back in, in, in those days. Uh, and he uh, also studied country life, There's some more of his, his his photography. His main interest was in ranch hands. Vaqueros, these these are the guys who uh, uh, herded cattle for uh, uh, big ranchers, both Mexican and uh, Anglo. Um, And this is the sort of housing uh, they they lived in. Uh, This is directly from a uh, bulletin of uh, the Office of Experiment Stations. Here's a, uh, uh, is that a dog house? No, it's an oven. It's an oven. Uh, here are here are some women preparing tortillas uh, and uh, the man of the house. Uh, a kind of supervising. Now here's what Professor Goss produced as an outcome of his research. Uh, we. It, Professor Goss filtered through me, uh, I I, uh, arrange his data uh, as a typical diet. You can see the basic categories across the top, the specific foods in each and every cell, and then uh, primary, secondary cores, and periphery. Primary core food uh, in, uh, in, in my field refers to the core staple products. In uh, operational terms, this would be the food that you find in at least half of the households you walk into every day. Um, and it's here in, uh, in amongst the uh, Mexican Americans, notice wheat flour above corn. Well, isn't that interesting? Uh, the, uh, nothing, in, nothing in meat and dairy. A little lard over there, some potatoes and chilies. Uh, Secondary core is what you might find in a quarter, between a quarter and 50% of the households. Uh, You see there's some egg there, and then the corn pops in. Um, and, uh, And then peripheral are just foods you might otherwise encounter. Say you're doing an investigation for two weeks, these would pop up here and there occasionally. Everything from uh, from ri- uh, beef ribs to uh, stick candy uh, showed up in in one or another household. Uh, but uh, notice how sparse it is compared to uh, uh, say 15 uh, or, or or 17 commodities in in several days. I don't think there's there may not be that many in the whole survey here, uh, or 47 commodities. Uh, throughout, and the difference of course is scope. You, you, you have the, uh, the uh, Colonel Bork looking at thousands of square miles and enumerating everything he saw in households of all sorts, and the, the, the perspective here is detailed and precise. By the way, the average household for a period of one week, five foods five foods for one week that's a, a pretty a pretty spare uh, pantry I'd say nothing of the quantity of foods it has to say with the monotony of diet uh, here's uh, I put these in here because I I did I did a paper a few years ago in which I compared what uh, uh, what chemist Goss found uh, with um, the Rio Grande Valley today um, uh, professor Goss's the problem in his day was uh, emaciation, undernourishment. Uh, today it's uh, obesity, uh, it, it's a heart disease, it's diabetes, it's from overnutrition, and, but the, these, these are the descendants of Goss's uh, subjects and how, how they live today. In my paper, I, I, I quoted a source from the University of Texas that said, 50% of the children are obese. A guy came up uh, to me from uh, the University of Arizona doing work in this area now. He said, wow, that's conservative. We're finding 70% of the children uh, obese. So uh, times times change as well as, uh, as cultures. African American research. Uh, Atwater and his CREW did a lot of it. They began in Tuskegee, Alabama, at Tuskegee Institute, where they formed a partnership uh, with the president of Tuskegee, uh, that's Booker T. Washington. Uh, He uh, uh, lent the good services of his institution and uh, some of his staff to to, uh, collecting dietary information on folks like these. Um, the, this is just um, an area which is devoted or was devoted 100% to cotton. This particular photograph uh, is from West Point, Mississippi in the same agricultural region. Yes, that's a shotgun in Mass's hand there. Uh, and uh, uh, that's his, uh, his crew of, of, uh, of pickers they're uh, referred to here. Uh, but this is this is what uh, uh, what conditions were uh, around uh, Tuskegee as well um, uh, master there would have uh, what's called a mortgage note on the crop um, he would he would lend money every spring uh, and then collect it in cotton collect on his loan in cotton in, in the fall uh, leaving leaving very very little left over. Um, in, uh, for afterwards, uh, Atwater's people also went into the great dismal swamp of of Virginia. This is what's called a dead tree farm. Uh, trees were uh, uh, girdled and and, and uh, left to die, and then crops uh, planted uh, where there was previously forest. Uh, these people were not uh, debt peons in a in a sense the way the uh, people around uh, Tuskegee were uh, these these are small farmers, many of them on rented land uh, but able to to do some uh, uh, some labor on their own account as well and selling uh, some of the crops on their own account uh, at waters people also went into uh, eastern Virginia's uh, agricultural area and studied truck farmers uh, these these Guys produced for market, they're very much in a cash economy. Um, These crops from this particular area and these particular farmers uh, regularly wound up in the markets of Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And then Hampton, Virginia, uh, where uh, uh, the, the, the black community owned businesses. Uh, were involved in, uh, in wage labor, such as here in the shipyards. I don't know if you can see those guys down there working on the hull. Other people looked at Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, particularly extremely uh, poor neighborhoods. Uh, many of them, many of the uh, subjects in these, in these studies on relief and receiving help from what at the time were called settlement houses. And then, finally, this is as close as we can get to uh, say the, um, the 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 black uh, elite or upper class, the students at uh, Cheney, uh, Pennsylvania. I think today it's Cheney State University. Uh, back then, it was the Institute for Colored Youth, and uh, these these were these were privileged kids. Even though the students here appear in uh, uh, servant outfits. Um, they were considered privileged kids to be going to this school. And so there was a detailed study of diet here, too. Uh, here's what I want to, uh, the point I want to make about uh, the comparison of these. Uh, here we go back to Tuskegee now in the typical diet. It's what um, historians regularly refer to as a, a hog and hominy diet. Uh, hog here represented by the by the bacon, the fresh pork, the hominy, by the cornmeal. Oh, wheat flour uh, sneaking in there. Wheat flour uh, became affordable and common amongst blacks just two years before Atwater's study. Uh, there was no wheat flour in the area uh, prior to uh, 1893 or so. Um, it uh, So, you know... Biscuits and gravy? Eh, that's not so. That's that's not so uh, ancient in terms of uh, uh, in terms of its distribution. Uh, so this is this is uh, uh, prototypical soul food, I suppose. You got the sweet potato there, the molasses, the uh, there are the greens and uh, cow peas and so forth. Uh, Franklin County in the the Dismal Swamp, uh, much the same, a little bit richer diet, uh, but but these folks were uh, not bound by mortgage notes, and they had a a swamp uh, to exploit. So you can see the fresh fish uh, in the picture there. They also were free to dispose of their labor in trade for groceries, and so you see they even had canned foods uh, available to them, canned tomatoes and canned peach. Uh, showed up in a a couple households in in, in that region.
0: Would the herring been canned
2: as well? Um, Probably. It's probably pickled or canned. Um, There was no note on that. Uh, Here's Philadelphia 1906. Ooh, now, now, uh, where did cornmeal go to? Way down in in peripheral, uh, and people are buying white bread uh, as, as a primary core food. Fresh beef is up there in the primary core, oh, but no bacon or salt pork. Um, sweet potato is still around. If there is one diagnostic that, that goes across the black communities in those early dietaries, it's the sweet potato. But gradually, the other so-called soul foods drift away until we reach the Institute of Colored Youth. And I miss it. I don't see any cornmeal there at all. Uh, sweet potatoes are there, but they're served as sweet potato puffs, directly out of, uh, directly out of Fanny farmer) <laughs> Um, and uh, look at this brown, brown bread and baked beans. You know we're we're talking something that looks more like a New England uh, kind of a concept of, of a diet now. Uh, so here's here's the point: uh, soul food kind of disappeared uh, as one moved north and into more cosmopolitan environments back in 1890. Now, certain writers have said, well, this was indicative of the fact of how black people were made to feel ashamed of their traditions and wanted to imitate whites, and uh, uh, when, the, when they uh, had the opportunity, um, they, they gave up their african Americanness." Uh, but uh, there's other diet. Uh, there's other dietary information in those records that suggest no such simple story. It's a cost factor is a big thing. Bacon in Hampton, Virginia, five times the cost of out in the countryside. People in Philadelphia paying 25 percent more for salt pork, the salt pork than in Virginia. Cornmeal twice the price. In other words, you'd have to be pretty darn uh, substantial and, and have a pretty substantial uh, uh, fa- family finances to be able to afford the components of soul food uh, once you were out of, out of the deep south and rural settings. Uh, also, notice, uh, here, here's, a, here's a comparison the Cheney students all the way down to uh, Tuskegee here, a kind of folk urban continuum, if you, if you will, uh, in which you take, take a, a, an important dimension of, of diet here, like animal protein, uh, very important for uh, uh, growth and tissue repair. Whoops, there we go. Um, Cheney students, 79 grams per man per day, gradually decreasing, decreasing. By the time we get to Tuskegee, 23 grams per man per day. Um, today found in the poorest parts of Africa. Uh, that, that, kind of, that kind of intake. Take a look at variety over here. What, why, why is variety important? Because uh, the more varied a diet, the less likely there'll be some kind of nutritional component that's missing. Okay. So, all the way, I don't know why this is starting to hop on me, but it is. Uh, all the way from uh, 22 uh, different foods per week, down to, there we are, in the single digits wow. again, four or five different foods per week. And there's a big chance that something important is being missing, it, it has been gone missing here. Now, I can't tell you what, because the data from that era is, Nobody knew about vitamins. Nobody looked for minerals. Uh, They weren't weren't, uh, uh, known yet to uh, to nutritionists. Rich and poor, forget about the rich. They weren't studied uh, at all. They weren't the problem uh, in in the eyes of uh, the the research uh, uh, establishment. Uh, The middle class professionals, well, they weren't the problem either but some data was gathered on them in order to provide contrast with the poor. And so we're lucky there. Um, but we're unlucky here, <laughs> because this, this was supposed to be a typical diet of a middle-class middle household uh, in, the, uh, in Illinois, Indiana area. Uh, I, I can tell you there's a lot of stuff uh, on there. Um, about uh, 70 different foods uh, uh, noted over the course of two weeks. Here's the other end of the continuum, um, the uh, poor working class. Uh, the data count here comes from Chicago, New York City, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. Um, and we're talking uh, white people here, a shot from a, a kitchen uh, in, in New York and it looks like uh, their data has disappeared magically, too. But we have at least uh, a comparison of, uh, uh, of, their, of their intakes. Now, let me say, if you looked at the, po- if you could see the poor people's intake, uh, different foods they ate, it was marginally less in terms of number of different foods uh, than, uh, uh, than the middle class households but not, not terribly le- uh, less. But notice here if you look down again animal protein which is uh, uh, unless you're a very rich vegetarian able to bring in the proper amounts of vegetables uh, or, or vegetarian type uh, items throughout the year, it's very it would be very unsafe to be a vegetarian in, in this particular. Uh, environment. Uh, You can see here that the poor always come out lower uh, than the uh, than than the middle class. And over here uh, same story in terms of variety. Um, Now again it doesn't seem like it's Drastically less, no matter uh, the dimension you take, which which led various early nutritionists, here's uh, and, and historians, to say, well, America has never really had uh, a hunger problem. At least at least in terms of major scopes, maybe pockets of it here and there, maybe times of year when the diet is monotonous. But we've never had a great hunger problem. People would come from Europe and be astonished at how much better off they were uh, at the table. Look at data and, uh, and there's some reason to question this. This is, this is data collected by, uh, uh, by nutritionists and uh, physical anthropologists uh, in, in recent times. The, uh, the zero point here on our chart is average stature. The folks over here are of what we could call the professional <laughs> and managerial, managerial class. The folks over here, working class, okay? Now this astonishes a lot of people and it's not really very perceptible these days, but. Excuse me, could you read the. Those of us who. Could you read the left
1: vertical writing that is at an angle there and I can't read it.
2: What is the vertical? The vertical is tenths of an inch. But
1: it's high. Read the caption.
2: Oh, oh, okay. Uh, 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 Deviation of height from mean in inches. So as some deviate high, others deviate low, it's working oops, working class that deviate low. Um, but notice it's fraction, fractions of an inch. Um, and uh, so it's not very noticeable test in in this day and age. But if you go back to, uh, The Gilded Age, quite a different story. Here's some more data from today. Um, This is again deviations from mean uh, stature by specific occupations, executive, professional, technical on the left, uh, hand uh, kind of work, farm work uh, on, on the right. In England, Not too long ago, the same phenomena was very, very visible. Again, it's diminishing, and it's uh, uh, more and more difficult to detect, but uh, uh, you have no trouble here discerning who's a member of the peers and who's uh, working class, and it's uh, etched in uh, stature. What determines stature? It's the quality of your nutrition growing up. Uh, the better it is, the taller you get. The uh, uh, the worse it is, uh, the shorter you are. Of course, you have hereditary and effects also. Uh, at least this is in on the same uh, hereditary pool, so no, the hereditary effect is constant. And we're talking populations, not individuals. So, Here's the, here's the, uh, um, the cause. It's not, you can see, this is average energy content of diets by season, and you notice it's a roller coaster. This is for working class New York City, uh, 1890s. You notice the dive in energy intake in winter months. It's uh, it's stated in terms of uh, uh, total energy. Um, the uh, little uh, the dotted line uh, at the bottom there is, uh, is intake from animal energy. But let's just take total energy. When when uh, there's insufficient energy in the diet, and and in uh, uh, in this day and age, twenty five hundred calories a day might be enough today. It's about recommended range today, but grossly, grossly uh, uh, undernourished in uh, uh, in 1890, in which the the, to maintain weight that is balance intake and output, output you needed 3,500 calories a day. So this this is this is a thousand calories under requirement. Uh, So so kids like this, what's going to happen during the winter? is that the protein that would normally go into uh, uh, building stature, uh, building muscle and other body tissue, or repairing damage from diseases like the flu or a cold or something like that, the protein is being diverted to serve energy needs. And you you all know that you can look at tree rings and see growth Mm -hmm. annually. You can do the same to bone, folks. Uh, and they're, they're, you're talking interruptions, winter interruptions uh, in growth, which are never made up, because after you after you reach uh, a certain age, uh, there, there will be no more growth. So uh, you wind up stunted uh, uh, for life. Uh, here we here we see it in a different way. This is this is middle class intake. Uh, versus, uh, uh, versus intake from the poor. Uh, and you can see that that's the uh, working classes in the darker bars. Uh, you can see it drops off in the winter time, uh, whereas the uh, middle class people, yeah, they even increase their energy intake a little bit. And here's how they're doing it. This is, this is the intake of fat. They increase their fat consumption during the winter, and and keep their uh, because um, because vegetable foods, it's particularly animal fat uh, because uh, uh, vegetable foods are scarce uh, during our scarce or more dear. Uh, they uh, they use animal fat to make up for the uh, greater energy needs of the cold weather, and uh, and and thereby maintain. Intake over here. You can see it then drops off. Summertime, it drops off uh, again. But in this case, you have uh, uh, you you have uh, uh, less need for for calories because now you're this is this is New York City and it's hot <laughs> and and, uh, and and much <coughs> much less need for uh, uh, for a, a bundle of calories. Uh, A quick trip back to the south where the roller coaster is quite different. You notice uh, the downward slope here in nutrition happens in the spring. March and April continues on down and then gradually comes up again uh, to uh, that level shown here for October. This is a drop in animal protein. What's happening? Well, in the south by March and April it's turning hot. Uh, animal protein uh, becomes scarce because meat doesn't keep anymore uh, as well not nearly as well as it did during the cold and frosty weather prices go up uh, dairy products particularly milk becomes downright dangerous uh, because it's uh, uh, it, it's not cool enough to safely keep milk and so you have the same the same uh, problem here um, insufficient protein, negative impact on kids. Uh, they, they don't make it up. In, in, in 1909, uh, there was a tremendous breakthrough in the corn milling industry. Uh, machines like this, instead of machines like that, a simple, a simple uh, grinding stone. Uh, it removed the last of the corn germ uh, and, and that, that resisted older milling processes. Um, this was looked as a great breakthrough in the grocery industry or the uh, corn milling industry because it, it meant infinite shelf life for, for ground corn, cornmeal. But out the window went the, the last of the niacin in, in, in corn, and uh, uh, bad news for people who were already short. Uh, children uh, were the problem here. Their growth was interrupted uh, because of protein being burned as fuel or or not being available whatsoever uh, owing to to the nature of the climate. Let me close uh, with uh, male and female. Here's a very rare picture uh, of uh, a college dining room Uh, at a a female female, uh, dormitory or uh, college. This is is, uh, Oxford College in Oxford, um, Ohio. And it looks like the girls are having a celebration here of some sort. They, I don't know if they dress this finely daily for classes or not, but they seem to be finely dressed and and the room is festooned. Men and women ate in separate facilities. In the 1890s, uh, 1880s. Uh, therefore, we can take same college, uh, same class of people, same region of the country, and compare men and women. Men often and, and women ate in what are called uh, eating clubs. A few colleges still have them around the country, uh, including Princeton University, where this this photograph was taken. This is a a men's eating club. Uh, perhaps you can make it out. Here's the, the waiter up here. And in this picture is a uh, future president of the United States. Woodrow Wilson. Third <laughs> <Heard> from the- <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Holding hat in hand. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson, yes. Did you see that photograph before? I'm reading the book. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> your book, I mean the book on. Oh! Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah his book. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's look at some of the differences that emerge when you compare eating clubs and, and dormitories, uh, male on the one hand, female on the other hand. Uh, first off, men consume... Uh, a much larger variety of animal meats and a greater variety of meat cuts. Uh, that is to say, uh, uh, different cuts within the same species. <coughs> women overwhelmingly favored, and I, I'm women, particularly at dining clubs, had a direct say in what was purchased for their consumption. Uh, they overwhelmingly favored beef over other meats, and preferred the much more expensive cuts. In fact, uh, rib roast was uh, the single most uh, consumed cut of meat in in, uh, women's um, dining facilities. Women avoided fresh pork. Uh, On the other hand, they didn't abstain from cured pork, uh, bacon, ham, and other cured pork items. Pork in the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, was looked upon as a, um, not a food that a proper uh, young woman or old woman would eat. I mean, just not a proper food uh, for people, particularly of um, middle and upper class. Uh, It was looked upon as, Unsanitary in some way, and I'm now I'm not talking about some say some influence from Judaism or something like this. It, it's not a ritual um, uh, notion of it being unclean for spiritual reasons. Uh, it's it's more the jungle kind of unsanitary. It's it, it's unsanitary for septic uh, uh, septic concerns, and and the uh, <coughs> Women avoided pork for that reason, but there's a there's another. Maybe it is sort of a mystical concern. Pork was looked upon as crude and countrified. Beef was modern and uh, uh, fashionable. This is the time when the refrigerator car first comes into uh, uh, general usage in America, and train after train after train is departing the uh, stockyards of Chicago with refrigerator beef uh, bound for. Uh, the markets of, uh, of the East and, and, and south so uh, this is modern pork still traveling alive in those stock cars uh, uh, or cured and, and cured pork were, items is fine mm-hmm
1: but if they were
2: roasted
1: they were good nutrition yeah
2: but mom, that's but people weren't aware of nutrition remember they, no one thought about that. Yeah. Whatsoever. Um, it hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> uh, we'll turn to dairy here. Uh, unlike uh, uh, men, women ate plenty of cheese and used cream daily. The figures I, as I work through them, show seven times the dairy cream consumption uh, for females over over males. Couple that with the fact that they consume considerably more butter. Cotylene. Coddling is a uh, precursor to margarine, so-called because the primary constituent is cottonseed oil mm-hmm. and eggs. So um, vegetable dishes. Men uh, ate on an app, this is at Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Uh, Men uh, ate 14 vegetables over a two week period. Women consumed 47 vegetables uh, over the same period. And that's not counting um, grains or dried uh, dried beans and peas. So (coughs) the tables in women's dining rooms contain roughly 25% more types of food. They consume disproportionately large amounts of fat and in a brilliant uh, part of the study at, at Western Reserve, there, there was uh, comparative uh, data on uh, the amount of waste and women cleaned their plates, uh, whereas uh, men were, were the wasters uh, at, uh, at that particular school. Hey, Ron. Yes. Since this is a small sample relative to the entire population,
1: is it statistically
2: significant? There are no statistics here, uh, uh, Peter. Um, actually, they're not necessary either. The reason for that is that um, it, it's well documented amongst nutritionists that the amount of variation amongst the entire population in the United States in terms of macronutrients is, is less than 5% very tiny when when sampling and uh, statistical rigor came into being a need in nutrition is when we started dealing with vitamins and minerals where there's a gross difference in the amounts uh, consumed at different portions of the population but in these three nutrients there's hardly any difference across populations so you know I can I can uh, I can look at three or four households and have a pretty good, uh, really strong certainty that that's what, that's the way it is for everyone in the community. Um, it's quite different. Yes? Is
1: there any um, way to tell cause and effect here, whether it's what the men and women demand?
2: Coming right to it, right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, here, Here you have uh, some commercial productions uh, this a uh, the cover of uh, uh, for sheet music and this one uh, an advertisement for chocolate creams and you notice the women are uh, uh, robust uh, and, and and these in these pictures we have none of our, our uh, 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 slim and modular types uh here's a group of here's a family of Irish folks uh, from uh, Bloomington, Illinois. That's a, that's a family. Uh, that, that, that lady there uh, bore all of these kids. This is not this is not their house. This is a painted piece of canvas like you might have at the State Fair where you have a family picture taken, this might have been their parish picnic or something of that nature. Um, and um, everyone looks kind of thin and, 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 and healthy, but through the eyes of people in the 1890s, now they would look wasted and diseased, not, not thin and healthy. This, this, was, uh, this was the ideal of the day. A uh, big house, big house here. Uh, and a big man. Uh, this guy is uh, Lincoln's uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, appointee, uh, Judge David Davis. Uh, also, he was his uh, campaign manager during Lincoln's first campaign for office. Uh, and uh, when we go to the uh, world of uh, female entertainers, uh, same thing. This is a uh, uh, Lily Langtree here. Whoops. Let's go back to Lily. Uh, She was um, uh, close to 200 pounds. Um, This is, um, I'm trying to think of her name. Very famous, um, very famous actress. I can't. Anyway, she she was she was 300, and here's uh, not 300, 200 pounds uh, plus. And here's uh, what's her name? Marie Tempest uh, from a uh, a stage play, and uh, I I wasn't able to find out uh, which what she weighed weighed in, at. but but the, obviously. There was something going on here that is a very, very different um, uh, model of, uh, of, of feminine beauty. These, these were the beauties, the, the, uh, uh, what girls aspired to, just as they might take uh, pic- pictures out of a fashion magazine now and aspire to be unrealistically thin, they aspired and what for many of them was an unrealistically plump model of, uh, of, of beauty, and here, here's the guy who uh, capitalized on that. Uh, this is this is Dr. Uh, uh, T. C. Duncan. Now, uh, had his office not too far from here uh, on North Avenue. Uh, he uh, wrote that book, "How to Be Plump," or talks on the physiology of feeding, and he recommended. His book is full of recommendations like. Drinking plenty of cream, um, uh, having a uh, uh, heavily uh, vegetarian diet with large midday meals, uh, so on and so forth, and uh, he, he did he did quite well with this book. So I think in answer to your question, you know what what do we have for cause and effect? Uh, you 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 have cultural causes here, uh, much as you have today, uh, which would push uh, young women in other directions on on the campuses of that day and age it was pushing them in the other directions and by the way the University of Chicago um, in a piece of literature produced not too long after it opens its its doors boasted to parents that they could count on their daughters gaining weight after the first semester, <laughs> so you know it, it was a plus, a big plus. funny. So anyway, that's just a, a few of the things that uh, that uh, I thought would be uh, interesting to talk about. The, the book covers a lot more ground, but I think I, I'll leave time for uh, uh, more questions. And we have one.
0: Yeah. Um, we went last summer to a program where they were showing dresses from the Civil War era. And I did not see a thick-waisted person at all. I mean, they were pretty slim. So, in the Civil War, was the 1860s. Now, are the 18. Was there a really a big shift from. Apparent- a-
2: apparently, so. Mm-hmm. Although, you see, now, look, look at these. These are University of Chicago co-eds here from. 1890. Um, they're not huge wasted. Isn't this the time when they're, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Actually, they're just putting themselves in those, in those harnesses, too? But still got still like, you know, squeeze
0: here and puffy here.
2: <laughs> yes, sir? Did you look at uh, any of the military documents that might have been on what they should have been the rackets and all that? Uh, no, I haven't. But that's that's a good place to go with it. And uh, I live not too far from the Pritzker Museum, so I think I think I'm going to pop over there someday and see what exists in the military uh, collection on, on that. Yes.
1: Well, wouldn't part of the, um, the, the, the desirability of plumpness be kind of um, a reaction, I mean, a sign of health in the sense that, you know, tuberculosis would be pretty rampant in those days, so this, if you were plump, it meant you were, you know, not prone to disease?
2: Right. Um, it, it's frequently um, observed in the literature that um, she, she looked consumptive. As a, a, a description of somebody who who, who, who was thin, uh, consumptive, uh, uh, lean, and angry—you know—that that kind of—they're negative portrayals, disease or, or uh, mental attitude or, or whatever. Uh, not not uh, not pretty. I couldn't really tell
1: from this as uh, so. well. If you had looked at uh, one of the cultural groups, you would say the German group, the, uh, the, the Russian Jew group, and you had looked at those groups in the east versus say Texas where they had some of those groups, would there have been tremendous differences? I,
2: I think so. Um, now there's, again, the opportunity no opportunity to know what Texas was like because no one was uh, uh, interested in investigating it at the time, but, but just at, at, uh, uh, to your point, uh, there was a very, very careful study done at the University of North Dakota, males and females. And uh, the, the women at the University of North Dakota, mainly German and Scandinavian households, and they would not fit the model I was talking about at Western Reserve. Um, they, they, um, uh, as a matter of fact, um, ate much like uh, much like the men. There was very very little difference, uh, and they didn't they didn't eat meat eat much meat at all because they were from immigrant families that I think weren't uh, weren't weren't. Uh, Yet, acculturated to be as meat hungry as we, uh, we we see in the East, or maybe their farms just weren't as productive. I don't know. Yes.
1: During that era of plumpness preferred, are there any is there any data on heart heart health, heart attacks,
2: etc. to correlate to the overweight population? Um, no, I'm afraid not, um, and and that's that's uh, a drawback to all of this because. Atwater's studies, as as great as they were and as much territory as he covered, the German studies, the English studies, and so forth, um, they didn't collect any corresponding medical data. Mm -hmm. Not even (coughs) weights and heights, which is unfortunate. Uh, However, there are scattered here and there impressionistic... uh, for what that's worth, someone might say the children looked um, undernourished and scrawny, or something like that. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I was
1: with Kathy, and that was at the Antioch Historical Society. this gigantic priceless collection of Civil War dresses, and these ladies—now like, I was underweight. Well, I was we will leave it now. But these gals made me look fat. If I was a seven or a nine, and maybe a couple of times I got down below that, but these gals were very tiny.
2: I would be very careful about judging human physiology by a show of dresses. Yeah. I mean, I'd walk into Macy's today. Mm -hmm. What if I measured dress sizes? Would I get an accurate an accurate rendition of what Americans look like? you know, I think I think we have to be careful uh, of uh, the measures we use, but it, it, it is interesting that the ideal might be for a little waste of, I don't know. Yeah. Yes, sir. Were they back, back to the overweight thing? Were they even aware or monitoring somebody drops over were dead? Did they did they figure out whether it was a bad heart or a stroke or heart attack or did they say they dropped over dead? I mean, were they recording that kind of stuff? No. no. You, know? you, you you mean the, were they were they even aware of it? Uh, the, the, the required autopsy. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and I mean, I mean, you we were saying, was there a coronation? They didn't, didn't think about our health, how could they exactly, exactly. There, there there was no notion of this. That's why we have to, we have to reckon. Um, you know, it's another culture, and it's also that other culture also affects the scientists who were working at the time because it didn't dawn on them to look to look at such things. Uh, they, w- they wouldn't have been aware of uh, the dangers of a lot of fat in the diet. Robert?
1: Yeah, I, w- I was struck by the radical lack of variety at the bottom of the social scale and most particularly rural, much less in, in poor urban diets, which were more varied. And I was struck by the fact that In rural areas in in Europe historically and and around the world uh, that kind of very limited diet is associated with families because if you only have three you know four or five basic foodstuffs if you have one of those that disappears all of a sudden you're in big trouble yes now you suggest that one of the things that struck Europeans was that Americans were not starving to death. They made it smaller, but they were not dying of, of famine. Is there any reason you would suggest in terms of the American economy that at the very least protected the urban uh, the rural poor from the kinds of famines
2: that have affected the rest of the world with that kind of very
1: monotonous
2: diet well with that that, that very monotonous diet four or five six foods over the course of a week or two um, you're absolutely right you've got your eggs in a very small basket and should anything go wrong uh, you, you're you're liable to be in, in, in very big trouble um, people find it hard to believe that, that um uh, it, it was really like that. I, I have a colleague uh, in my old department down uh, at Illinois State, a guy from Tennessee, a country, a country fellow who, uh, who said, "Well, what do you mean? There's no, no hunting on there. <laughs> how could they be? How can those? Uh, how can those hillbillies not be hunting uh, uh, deer and rabbit and so forth? Uh, there is rabbit. Uh, there are no deer because." Um, Actually, back then, it was largely clear-cut. The deer were uh, endangered. Uh, we have bounded back from a, a, a precipice in in terms of uh, terms of food availability. So there's 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 one component that was pulled out of a diet from an earlier day. It 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 set the stage for pellagra, which if it wasn't famine was a hell of an outbreak of uh, malnutrition, uh, malnutritive disease that killed a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir.
1: Yeah, did alcohol uh, control, uh, like the Germans drink cereal on the beer regularly and the Italians drink wine
2: and everything? Did that enter into the uh, Yes, sir. Uh, it did uh, so long as the culture drank at home, because these were scientists going into the going into the home. Now the Czechs, Bohemians in those days, have lots of beer in their dietary records. Of course, they're they're great beer drinkers. Apparently, drank at home. Uh, Germans, no. Be- I guess they did most of their drinking at the local stube or you know or, or, or the beer garden. So so the uh, uh, this method misses that kind of consumption. It's not too worrisome because uh, restaurant dining or uh, uh, or eating lunch uh, uh, at a diner. Uh, during the day, that that wasn't much of a that that wasn't a very popular thing to do uh, until uh, the 1920s or so. So um, that stuff is missing. But uh, Italians, well, they're another story. Um, <laughs> the wine shows up in the few we have, but um, Italian people' attempts to uh, uh, study their domestic uh, diet were mostly a flop, because they, um, they agreed to the study, but then when the investigators showed up, they kicked them out of the house. <laughs> I guess they never thought they would show up, or, or, or uh, they're too private.
1: Um,
2: so we don't have much on, uh, on Italians, say for a few people who probably aren't typical in that they tolerated the investigation. Yes. I was very interested in what you said about uh, pork consumption.
0: Yes. Cuz I grew up um, mostly in the 50s and we rarely had pork and we never had any explanation. Later on, I thought well maybe it was the fear of trichomonas or something. Mm-hmm.
2: Trichomonas.
0: Trichomonas causing yeah, trichomonas. Yeah. Um oh, yeah. and,
1: and so was that ever part of like like I don't know when it was discovered?
0: Uh, but anyway I just the basic thing I wanted to say is I think that that has carried over for decades because it was very rare in my home to have four
2: yes um, the uh, the interesting part about it I think is the uh, gender difference yeah um, at the schools at least there was no problem um, serving it in fraternities and eating clubs and so forth. There's plenty of fresh pork consumed. However, um, I also uh, was able to look at a lot of records from training tables, that is to say uh, teams, uh, from football through uh, rowing, and they did not eat pork. They specialize in beef, and, and bloody rare. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's one of the reasons that the pork was on, you know, was, okay. you could, yeah. so you get the, I don't know how to say the word, the trichinosis is so it's dry, so dry it just
2: wasn't that appealing. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't, I, I, I don't know when when that disease was, or when that vector was, uh, uh, for the uh, worm was discovered. I think it was well known by the 50s, yeah, or I think so. Yeah. I remember hearing the same story. Yeah. I actually went to
1: another country when I was 11 years old and turned up, visited a pathology lab, and this doctor was showing me all of this parasite parasites under microscopes. Can't hear
0: you. There's, there's
1: um, so, so the, it was well known by the 40s and 50s. It wasn't like. That um, was known. He already now we all during World War Two, because in, um, in the army, people like who were up in the last they tried to go out after
2: eating polar bears, anything, got there. Yes, <laughs> it's not only pigs. Well, I want to th- I want to thank you for your uh, kind attention, and uh, <laughs> we do have some copies of the book here. <laughs> and anyone else have a question? I'd be happy to. Uh, to uh, talk to you, and, and uh, oh, there's food in the back. It's, uh, um, it's from the, this, these are two kinds of pies, a raisin pie and a prune pie, they're from the book. They are from the logging camps of the far north woods. There's perhaps, um, uh, these were people that burned eight to 10,000 calories of energy per day. There's no more concentrated source of caloric energy than dried fruit. So go, go in peace. <laughs>